1: Do you know where David is? Is he your dad? He said you'd come. He invited you to join the undersea. They won't use chloroform if you know it. A prophecy. You should say it. Welcome to Station Eleven, the podcast, a show that dives deep into the HBO Max limited series, Station Eleven.
2: Every episode will be joined by a member of the cast or crew of the show and find out not only their approach to the characters and stories, but will also reveal special behind-the-scenes insights into production in the process. I'm Patrick Somerville, creator, showrunner, and executive producer of Station Eleven.
1: And I'm Angelica J. Bastian. I'm a writer and pop culture critic for New York Magazine, site, Vulture. Each week, Patrick and I will sit down with one of the many talented collaborators and artists from the TV series and talk about storylines, themes and characters.
2: We're also going to talk about what it's like to tell a story about a pandemic while living in an actual pandemic. It's going to get real.
1: Today, we're joined by Helen Wang, costume designer extraordinaire, who will share her inspiration for some of our favorite pieces from the show, including everything going on with the traveling symphony and the undersea. And we'll get into some of the pivotal moments from episode six, Survival Is Insufficient.
3: It's so poetic, and you wouldn't say that about a space costume, you know? But like everything on the show, it's just like charming and very optimistic. So, episode
1: six is some real heavy shit, let's be honest. (laughs) At this point, the traveling symphony is tired and weary. They just had their friend killed by some admittedly creepy children wearing landmines and learned that this may be connected to the fact that Kirsten tried to kill a man. And, of course, not just any man— but the man we've come to know as the prophet. And at the very start, they are seemingly kidnapped at gunpoint by the man who keeps bugging them about this museum of civilization. So, Patrick, there's a lot we need to dig into. Let's talk. Where I really want to start is a line that really struck me that Alex said. It said at the start that Kirsten saved her from becoming part of a cult. And Alex says, as almost an aside, I'm already in a cult.
0: Hey, Alex! I knew you'd be okay. Kirsten thought you
2: joined the cult. I'm already in a cult.
1: So I just really want to get into everything happening with the Traveling Symphony because there's a lot of intensity and tension happening within their familial dynamics in this episode.
2: Let me ask it to you like this, Angelica. Mm. First, what is a cult?
1: I was going to make a joke and then I was like, no, that's terrible. Make so the I'm joke gonna... <laughs> and
2: no, give the joke and then, then answer.
1: Cause it's actually a lie, but I was going to say something that a lot of white people seem to get caught up in. Oh my
2: goodness. I'm very interested in that answer,
1: which isn't always true, though, to be honest.
2: Can you say more?
1: I mean, the way cults are talked about and even like in true crime contexts, like it's very much focused on a very specific very white-coated image of some asshole white man who wants to abuse his power through charisma. And usually there's something nefarious and sexual and fucked up going on. And it's enacted upon people who are very vulnerable and yearning and in need, often very young women. But that's not always the case. Well,
2: that's a very predatory version of cult and there's a lot of examples of that one yes i could unpack what you just unpacked for a long time i would love to like specifically it's a man yeah and then the word charisma Mm
1: -hmm. you
2: say it like a woman who's skeptical of charisma
1: oh because i am can we talk about
2: that because (laughs) shannon houston always used to say this in the writer's room too she's the ingenious writer of episode three but a huge force in how we thought about the show tell me more
1: I've just never fully trusted charismatic people. Huh. There's something about charisma that makes me very uncomfortable because it can be a very overwhelming force. When someone is, like, truly charismatic... I have a history with charismatic and not kind men, I think.
2: It's Don't go hand in hand, necessarily. Sometimes do, right?
1: Sometimes do. Don't
2: have to at all. But I think that's the magic spell, I think, of charisma... Let me tell you about a category of people. Professional actors. (laughs) Charisma. Absolutely just oozing off of actors. And Mm -hmm. they have special powers. They do. The point of my question, I think, was Traveling Symphony is a cult also.
1: But it's a fun cult. Come on. It's queer. It's...
2: Well, there you go.
1: Welcoming.
2: but that's what everyone in every cult thinks about their cult. <laughs> <laughs> You're
1: probably right. Until they don't. Until they're like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs>
2: well, Charlie Symphony does not send children with minds on them out to enact things. But I would think after you watch Six, neither do the undersea. I think if you believe what who we now know as Tyler says, he lost control of the story after he got stabbed and was Mm -hmm. down for the count for a week and the kids started telling the story themselves. The implication, I think, in there that's important for this episode everywhere is it is maybe a cult. He is doing a thing that's dangerous for these children. He's taking care of them also, I think. And then he's like, until you stabbed me. (laughs) And (laughs) this is the beginning in the show where we're going to put violence on trial. Our use of it Regardless of where we acquired a taste for it, and this is true of both the prophet and Kirsten, this is a, one way they're the same. They picked up some things they needed to survive uh, along the way, but we got to shed them sometimes too, I think. And that's, that's the second half of the story to me. Anyway, we, back to the, the cult line, because I the, I'm one last thing is the perfect question. The word culture,
1: mm.
2: that's where that word comes from. A cult is a group of people who decide to believe a thing together. Yeah. So we use the word cult as like, that's a bad thing that happens to people. But that's what Jeevan did with Kirsten in the parking lot. And one, they decided, let's believe this thing, this little fiction to get us through. And I think like, there's an upside to cults, Angelica. <laughs> <laughs> that's a,
1: that's what <laughs> you I'm heard it here first, folks. I'm
2: trying to <laughs> sell you on um, the, good, the good one the good version.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There's actually another line I have to ask you about. Tyler says a line that I totally felt, and I'm very curious to hear you unpack it, where he says, talking about himself, I'm a post pan, but I was born before. And I thought that was super interesting because it does really speak to his perspective as a person who, instead of like a lot of other pre-pants who maybe are very much clinging to ideas of the past and how they lived, he's has a very burn-it-all-down approach in a lot of ways.
2: We're just getting to know him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he seems to. His motto is, there is no before. Yeah. But this is a challenge to be both scary of it nefarious a bit like i don't trust this guy but also real Mm. like i do trust something inside the prophet is what alex had said it back in 104 it was true even if it wasn't true you know there's something real about that guy and i think storytelling wise it's really 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 hard to do this razor's edge where it's like dude you just let kids go blow themselves up you're not okay or a good person that's not you can't get off the hook. But then mm, the things we have to do to survive, the things we went through to survive, the things he's obviously doing to help all those kids survive. I, I think he's full of shit, I guess, back to your question. There is a before. <laughs> you can't say I'm a post pan just born before and say there is no before. <laughs> like, like, hello? <laughs> the, he knows the contradiction in him and the story he's telling. But I think, like, did you believe him? Are you? Here's my question for you, Angelica. Actually, not even that. Are you allowed to change your identity if you want to?
1: Yeah. It's hard, but I fucking hope so. Like, otherwise, life would be very static if we couldn't. I mean, isn't life all about changing your identity? I think sometimes we think we're more static than we are. Really are.
2: Yeah. Lots of things going on in this episode. I think the thing you have pointed out are sort of the show's changing after the halfway mark and now signaling what we're going to be interested in going forward. What's a cult? What's the equivalency? What's okay to pre- make up about yourself? What's different? What you can't run from? Because the show does not believe there is no before.
1: Of course. I think that's a really great point to end on before we get to our interview with Helen Wang. There is so much to unpack in this episode, and I'm super excited to speak to her about costuming. And beyond. And beyond. All right, everyone, you're in for a real treat today because not only is Helen Wang behind the incredible costumes for Station 11, but she is an Emmy winning costume designer with an impressive resume of work. We're talking American Horror Story, Birds of Prey, and The Shrink Next Door. Helen, the work you've done on Station 11 is so integral to this story, and I'm super excited to have you here and to talk more about it. Welcome to the podcast.
3: Hi, nice
2: to be here. Hi, Helen. (laughs)
3: Hi. Uh,
2: Can I throw in my my little intro for Helen, too, which is sometimes people don't know what HOD's heads of department do. But Station Eleven was very special in that we had a core group of heads of department, including Helen and Ruth Ammon, Christian Spranger, and Hero at the Front End, who really cooked the show, imagination-wise, in the early months. And Helen... Yes, she designed all the costumes with Austin Whitlock, her co-designer, but she's a conceptual artist, I have to say. And she, with us, made the language of the show in the early months. And so it's easy to say, oh, who who made the costumes? Who put that piece of clothing on that person? That's not this. Helen's Mm -hmm. an artist, and Helen authored Station Eleven with all of us. So I'm ready to get into it. If you are, Helen... (laughs)
3: <laughs> yes, that's quite an intro, Patrick. But thank you. Well,
2: I know you're not gonna you're not gonna toot your own horn, so I need to toot it. <laughs>
3: yeah,
1: that's really sweet. I I have to highlight the fact that you said authored. I think a lot of times when we talk about television, it can be very much just looking at the showrunner as the primary lens through which we kind of think about the artistry in the show. But it's a collaboration. It's a medium bound by collaboration, and so I really like that you did that, Patrick.
0: got your happy price price
2: line it's true Helen I would love will you tell the story about Dr. Eleven's suit as an example for what I mean by that like where did that come from do you remember
3: well for Dr. Eleven's suit you know it was supposed to be from a comic book and so there were a couple of discussions about getting the comic book ready figuring that out and then doing the Dr. Eleven suit like from the visuals of that so it could be sort of has this, like, imagination quality and not a real quality. But because of production, the suit actually had to be ready before any of that aesthetic was established. And so we just looked at every suit possible from the 1960s to the 1970s, you know, just trying to find, like, things that are a little bit off and not in the present vocabulary of, like, what a astronaut, someone who goes to space, sort of look like. And Patrick and Hero had some very sort of specific parameters. They wanted the Dr. Eleven character to sort of look like a janitor, someone who's been, you know, like in space for a long time and is very wary. Mm -hmm. But they never wanted to show the doctor's face. And so the helmet had to be pretty specific in terms of like it had to emote something but still be mysterious. And... I had our illustrators draw so many versions and I drew like every day I had a little notebook and was like drawing different versions of like astronauts. It was like this really like obsessive thing that we were doing and then trying to sort of, you know, pitch different elements of it. And then there came, like, the practical element of making it, you know, and it presented, like, a whole host of, like, new problems Mm -hmm. in terms of, like, someone actually being in the suit, being able to, like, walk around. I had many discussions with Patrick and be like, what do you want him to do? Because. (laughs) Dance, I said.
2: I I kept saying I wanted him to be able to dance.
3: And then Patrick was like, please, can he, like, hold a coffee mug? (laughs) So there was, like, all these sort of, like, discussions. But. It did come out like beyond my greatest dreams of like what this character can look like, you know, and then Ruth to do his space station like she really took what we had done with the suit Mm -hmm. and made something fantastical in the set. Like when I walked on set and saw that it was see-through and they were going to shoot it from underneath him. I just thought it was so amazing.
2: Thank God you did a good job with the boots. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
3: <laughs> I guess. you know those boots are uggs really i'm just giving away secrets no, right now. It's like that's what we're doing yeah there's fabrication that is made outside of the uggs so everyone's really nice and comfortable and it looks great and then the visor that has like the crack on it it's just like it's so poetic that costume and you wouldn't say that about a space costume you know but like everything on the show it's just like charming and very optimistic i think
1: That's really beautifully put. And it's really fascinating hearing your process about the sketching and like the arc of where a costume goes from imagination into reality in a way, which makes me really want to ask about the undersea and, you know, what elements were you pulling from, uh, especially with other artists you're working with in different departments, which I imagine was kind of tricky considering the COVID of it all. But I'm really curious about the process with that part of the costuming
3: um, station 11 is one of those rare shows where it's sort of like the costumes almost have to be imperfect you know if it gets too perfect if we mess with it too much it just wouldn't look organic or like real we had a very good aging dying team and our head dyer Tamara. she was the craftiest person every day i would take her sort of like my inspiration pictures and be like, make something, you know? (laughs) And she would just make all these like insane little accessories and things that would go together. And then we would have children body doubles like come in and we would fit all these components on them and then kind of step back and like look at it and say, what do we need to add more of? What do we need to add less of? It was about like craft and, you know, making things together from like almost like trash and things that are not, used very often in art but it was also really fun for them in the fittings because I'll be like so what do you think we should add and they'll, they'll like pick out accessories and like try it on them so it's like just this very kind of organic process that sort of went through like a lot of people and a lot of stages and it filters through like that you know when Patrick talks about like costume designing as like an art form I really do sort of believe in that but I also I think in general, I want people to know that like a costume designer is not the end all be all of like a design because there's a whole department and there's other departments and sort of it's collaborative art. And so you do have to rely heavily like on your team and their sort of like imagination and what they want to give, you know, oftentimes I view the costume designer as sort of like an editor, you know, you have Hmm. sort of a vision that you want to do and you have people and surround yourself with people that could bring you the things that would create that vision and you sort of edit the final product that comes out. And so I feel like credit should be given to everyone that, you know, doesn't get to be on a podcast that contributes greatly.
2: We are getting a lot of the people on the podcast, (laughs) but I think that that's very true. What Helen's saying about the collaboration and the way the departments touch against each other, especially for a show like this. I have a very specific question for you, Helen. Do you remember a conversation we had about The Labyrinth starring David Bowie? <laughs> yes. <laughs> because episode 106, the undersea were the set of humans where our tone, I think, was hardest, most nuanced to retain our grounded tone. But also become fantastical. Yeah, I located the labyrinth as like the event horizon. <laughs> yeah, we could not cross into labyrinth or dark crystal territory, yes. but we could be near it. We, we needed to feel like these were real kids wearing things, yeah. not a cult wearing a bunch of things that were hyper designed by a team. I'd love to hear you talk about kind of how, your approach to getting the tone right, because this is how the show works to me. Like. I always thought it was, if a kid could have made the thing, it felt real. Will you just talk about this tone issue in the show? Because it's so grounded in episode one.
3: Yeah. Do you remember the movie Hook with Robin Williams? Yep. (laughs) And the Lost Boys in that? I actually looked at that a lot because that was a different tone than our story. And sometimes to understand the tone that you're going for, you have to study the movies, which the tone you're not after and see how they got there and what you could do different. And I knew that going into the undersea, you can't have a complete outfit like the children's clothes can't look too curated. You know, if they have accessories, it can't look like it was all put together in like a very cohesive way, because that's not how people naturally sort of dress, especially children.
2: Well, it's too much intentionality, right? It yeah. would be like a cult yeah. is too intentional with their dress, but this cult is about a- autonomy. So, like, all the intentionality had to be subjective, I think.
3: Yeah. And then also, you know, post apocalyptic shows are about like dressing to a certain aesthetic. So it's like, gray. There's no resources. And the aesthetics of the piece comes before the individual. And that's not what Station Eleven is all about. The aesthetic of the individual always wins out over a cohesive aesthetic of the show.
2: Or their tribe. It wins out over even what the other people in their group are doing. There's kind of clusters of vibes, but the individual always wins. I agree with that.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And so we did small things, like we dyed the clothes so it's dirty and it kind of looks like they've all been sort of outside and functioning as such. But in terms of the clothes, it was just like some people were wearing, you know, adult clothes. Some kids were wearing children clothes. We just sort of tried to mesh it up a little bit. And then we did do a lot of fittings with the kid actors just to see what the right tone was when they are all together. So when they exist as a group, you don't feel like it's over-stylized or anything.
1: I think what's really interesting in hearing about all of this, like the actual process of making these costumes and like bringing that part of the world building to life is how much we're all kind of circling around the ideas of collaboration and community, which is big on the show itself. But I'm curious to hear from you, Helen, how much was Patrick involved in collaborating with costumes. I'm curious about how he and his own ideas for the show on the page, like, influenced things and how you two work
3: together, basically. Patrick is someone who, like, he's a writer and he expresses things in like a narrative so when he gives notes he's not like I don't like the button on that shirt I hate that because that doesn't describe anything you know to me as a person but Patrick will be like I wanted to emote this I want this person to feel like this and I feel like those types of notes are the ones that I most gravitate and accept because it is a challenge, but you're trying to get a feeling, which is a part of film than rather a technical element of costume, which is like what I do. And also Patrick is like amazing because he chooses department heads. And when, after he chooses them, he trusts them like wholeheartedly Mm. and really like goes to bat for like their vision. Patrick, really accepts the fact that we're all working at a craft and are artists and can do the job that he wants us to do. But at the same time, like helmet. So he could like tell us all these qualities that he wants, you know. Also, we have so many meetings throughout this show because it was like a constant discussion, you know? Like, here's my first thought. Here's my second thought. But uh, it's just like, it's such a wonderful process. And when we look at pictures, it's like, I'm not afraid to show Patrick an art picture of like a putty with like a bunch of string on it. And being like, I want the undersea to feel like this. Hmm. And he's like, yeah, I get that. <laughs> you know, I think for Dr. Levin, like with Patrick and Hero, I showed them pictures of like appliances from the 60s. <laughs> and I was like, I really think this is what we should go for, for Dr. 11 and they'll be like, Oh yeah, Yeah, I
2: get it. You know, got what you meant. Well, (laughs) I don't even know what to say about everything you just said, but I will just add that I so strongly believe in sort of like, um, allowing expertise to organize in autonomous clusters, but also trust that communication is like very upfront and forthcoming. And I think that's the way to run a show. Too. Like, I didn't, it's not like I'm going to walk into Helen's apartment and sit down at a sewing machine (laughs) because A, (laughs) it will be bad. B, it's a huge fucking insult to everybody who's sitting around, who's mentored for years and spent dedicated their lives to it. The way to make a good thing is to trust people, but you got to find the right people too.
1: That's really beautiful just hearing you guys talk about collaboration and what you have to do, whether in film or, in this case, television, to kind of ask a more episode-specific question as well to you, Helen. Obviously, uh David slash Tyler slash The Prophet. I'm just going to call him Tyler going forward, but just so everyone <laughs> knows, that's who I'm speaking about. Out. <laughs> Secrets out. Secrets <laughs> out. They know. So with Tyler, he's a very fascinating character to me he's like a walking contradiction in a lot of interesting ways and I'm curious how did that aspect of him both on the page and in performance influence how you thought about costuming him
3: well I think in the beginning there was a lot of conversations and it was about like not making him dangerous and so again I think it's about like respecting the person over the aesthetic Mm. so we didn't want to dress him like a villain and then when they casted danny i was just like oh when they get into a room with you my spider senses just go (laughs) off and you're just like oh this is how this person is supposed to be dressed you know
2: why how come
3: i think as costume designers because clothing is so personal bodies are so personal you have to read the room about like how comfortable people are, what you're getting off of them like as a person. Because like it's like when I meet a person, I'll be like, oh, you feel like this, especially actors, but we need to get you to this other place. How do we use clothing to transform you visually and your energy into this other place? Mm. But this comes from, I think, just like a lot of trial and error, a lot of work. And I try every day to sort of observe people I'm like such a creeper. I'll just like watch people (laughs) and psychoanalyze them like through their clothes, you know, and that's what happens when they come in. And that's what happened with Danny when he came in for the profit. We also had a huge arsenal because this was something that was happening in the pandemic is like we were in Toronto and there were like no stores open because they were on lockdown for the whole entire time we were there, except for three weeks. And clothes were not accessible to us besides these sort of warehouses that had barrels and barrels of like used vintage clothes. And so we would just go there and like go through all these barrels for these clothes. And so we did have a large collection of sort of different things. And then when Danny came in, we just like took out of our mind what he's supposed to feel like and sort of entered it with a clean space and just sort of tried on things on him and see what things really hit him emotionally and what I feel like sort of looks good and could fill the space of the show. So again, it was like very intuitive, you know, because we're trying to take away the subconscious of like stores and like labels and like what pattern fits what person because in this world that language doesn't exist anymore you know and then we try to put back things that feel emotionally help the actor feel connected to their character like Danny's jacket in this episode the white with the flags from every nation we brought him some clothes and we were trying on clothes and he like literally looked at it and was like I have to wear that and I was like, oh, my God, he's going to shoot at night. There might be problems. Like, I was, like, sweating because of the, the challenges of, like, shooting a pure white thing. And so I quickly emailed Patrick and then the director and was like, he's really emotionally attached to this. Like, can we figure out a way to shoot this, you know?
2: Did I love it? Didn't I just love it when you texted it to me?
3: You did. And I had to be like, yeah, but you're not shooting it. Helen is at night. We have to ask the director <laughs> if it's okay. <laughs>
1: to switch gears a little bit we've got to talk about this episode's moment of magic so to speak sort of starting where cody asks kirsten like about the internet and if the internet really existed and then that leads into everything with you know the red bandanas coming out of trees and shit taking a very hard left so the internet was real then Oh yeah, yeah. The internet was real. What was it like? Uh, It was like a, a bunch of computers could talk to each other from anywhere in the world, and uh, you could send messages or pictures, and you could read any book, watch any movie, could find anyone. <laughs> Sounds beautiful. Yeah. Why do you ask? That's what's in the museum. On the little black thing, this big. Oh. Huh. He says is like a weed. I don't know. I liked Instagram. I'm curious to kind of talk a little bit about that sequence, to talk maybe about Cody's costuming in particular and how you try to embody or think about backstory through costuming and kind of really getting across someone's personality through clothing with a sequence like that.
3: Well, with Cody in particular, a lot of the characters actually is like, we really wanted to be like gender fluid because these kids were born after the pandemic. There weren't so many sort of rules about like what you should or shouldn't be like. And again, the perspective comes from them liking what they want to wear. And so we brought him like a a bunch of things that were not specifically for boys. Like in the second episode where he meets Kirsten, he was actually wearing like a girl's tank top when he was like swimming, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm.
2: I want to ask you a specific question about what Cody's wearing at the end of six, because I didn't script it that he was wearing a shirt Uh that said love (laughs) on it. It's a critical moment in our story because... You know, undersea feels like bad guy, bad guy. And then in episode six, we get to know them a little bit and we see the promise of the undersea. We see that they maybe are premised on love. It's quite a thing for the person wearing the shirt that says love to get stabbed. You guys did that. And I would love for you to just talk about it.
3: Well, I would have to say it wasn't like such a direct conscious choice because of what was happening in the script, all I knew was I wanted him to feel disarming. And so that was a female child's shirt that said love. And, you know, I've always been, especially on this show, like really focused on like how typography feels different on clothes. And when I saw that, I was like, how amazing would it be, would be for him to have such an innocent word, but also in the type that is on the clothing of a child on cody and i feel like it is a way to sort of like tie him into even though the undersea can be quite destructive sort of like the innocence of sort of how these kids really feel and when he put it on it was just like it was a little bit too short for him it was just kind of one of those moments where you just put the two and two together and it just felt emotionally that was right for him and there's something like quite iconic about it i think I want to switch gears a little bit for one of
1: my last questions to you, Helen, uh, and kind of look back on episode three, and specifically uh, dressing the Miranda character. Because one thing, you know, I think about a lot as a critic, as a Black woman, um, as someone just, you know, a viewer and lover of film and television, is how (laughs) terrible colorism is in the industry. And I often say to people, you can tell how good a show or film is going to be with a Black character based on how they're lit, like how the cinematography lights them. But I think also the same can be said about costuming and understanding how to play up the beauty of, like, really much darker skin tones. And I wanted to just ask you about, like, Handling that dynamic as a costume designer, what goes into your thought process when you think about dressing darker skinned folks and like what, you know, what sort of stories you wanted to tell through Miranda's costuming as well?
3: There's a couple of things I really try to work on when I costume in the industry. One is how women are portrayed on screen, Mm. because I feel like the attractiveness of women is actually a flaw in film having to make them attractive all the time Mm. in sort of different economic circumstances I really hate that because (laughs) it's treating the woman as an object and not an actual person the second thing and I've had this you know when I entered into the industry is like when they talk about darker skin people they're always like we need contrast so that's the coded language we need contrast what's the code the code is like they can't wear dark clothing because of their skin color it's really (sighs) offensive and I I get that a lot like Can we have them in brighter colors, which I really, really hate because it reduces a person down to their skin color. And again, that idea of like, are they appetizing and attractive on screen? And I feel like those type of things when it comes together makes people non-people and non-characters. And so with Miranda, you know, because of her economic circumstance, when she first starts out, like she's, you know, poor, she's not wealthy, like, we thrifted clothes for her. Like, we literally went to, like, Value Village in Chicago and, like, thrifted <laughs> things with, like, the have age that are men's. Because I feel like with her character, like, I really wanted to feel like her collection of clothes is, like, from where she picked them up, you know? So they could be other people's clothes. And I didn't want her to feel attractive because she's not supposed to at that time. Mm-hmm. And God bless Danielle. She came in and she would put on anything i give to her. And that's, in itself, when an actor comes in like that, that's a blessing because they trust that you know how to make them a character. So she was character first. And then as she progressed, making her a human person, someone that has a narrative, because if you could do that for white actors, if they could be so many different things, why can't you extend that to people of color? Why do they have to be just one thing? I agree. Or another? Yeah, And not have different stages in their lives, you know? Yeah, And so with her, I really, really try to really understand emotionally where she's at, financially what she has accessible, how you want her evolution to like read, and how can I make her not just be about this female that is an attractive thing that Arthur is like dating, you know?
2: Well, what Helen is saying is also, I think, such an important reminder that Miranda's Blackness mattered beyond any superficial elements. Yeah, She is the progenitor of the graphic novel that is going to be the spiritual text that guides a lot of different people. And we couldn't just pretend that she wasn't Black. Why would we? And we were lucky enough to have a team that had been shooting Atlanta for a couple of years telling Black stories very well with Christian Spranger and hero morai who who very much knew the technicalities of shooting different skin tones mm-hmm. and what that did cinematographically. but then helen and her awareness of that as well and I, and I i felt like as as the white showrunner i can only speak for myself i just found myself learning hmm. learning how much this matters i guess all i can say is uh, to all my my fellow white male showrunners <laughs> listen Listen a lot because like your show is going to be better if you listen to the people who know.
1: Yeah, I hope so. On a very different, not as heavy note, um, (laughs) (laughs) I really want to ask about the costuming for the Traveling Symphony when they're actually doing their performances because they're so beautifully textured and like dynamic and surprising. Like, I'm just like really astounded by that. I like... Really love it and would love to hear you talk a little bit about how you conceived of that aspect of costuming in the show and because there's such a sense of playfulness to it and I'm really curious of how you brought that to life.
3: Well, there were many sort of plays in the script. Like the first one with Arthur, like we really wanted it to feel very controlled Mm. aesthetically to reflect sort of like how our society is now. There is a very big control on what costume theater costume, like, look like. And then for the Traveling Symphony, when they're doing their performance, my thought was, like, why should I do this with a Eurocentric idea of what theater costume is? Like, just because it's Shakespeare, it doesn't need mean it needs to be a European period costume. Like, why don't we make the show about something more appetizing, <laughs> like art, You know, and also if you think of these people that are in the traveling symphony, they're not professionals of any sort, really. Like there are people who have experienced a lot of trauma through the pandemic, the flu, and have chosen the symphony and as sort of a way to navigate themselves emotionally during the time period. And so their perceptions can be very different And the way they make things can be very different. So we looked at a lot of photography that, you know, dealt with like masquerades from all around the world, what people wear to sort of different ceremonies and different cultures to look at like the different shapes what sort of different textures mean to people to take us away from this like American and then also the Eurocentric mindset. And we even looked at people like designers who have really disconstructed garments like Comme des Garcons and things like that and sort of like how they would deconstruct an idea and put it back together. Specifically for the the Gulf uh, element, Patrick was like, I just want them to you know, rob a golf store. And so that's <laughs> that's what we did because it was just about like what they had that was accessible. Like we were in this warehouse that had like architecture studio and so they would have a lot of trash and our age or dyers were literally go dumpster dive for like really? things that are discarded. Yeah, discarded and plastic. Into the dumpsters. And, yes. And just like bring back things with like different textures. And we just try to make... Clothing out of it because we think that that's what people would have done. You know, they can't just go to a fabric store and pick up a roll of fabric and do it that way. They have to think about, like, how can we get the feeling of something but not make it too recognizable?
2: Your people were sifting through the wreckage, which (laughs) is a line from the show, but we had to. You wouldn't have done that if it wasn't a pandemic.
3: No, we would have bought more things, but it's just like there was no resources. And so it's like, Life imitating art in a way. And also, it came out with like the best sort of aesthetic because we really had to like problem solve and like make things work. You know, a lot of the costumes were built out of like rotten fabrics that we found in those barrels, you know, and like what we could sort of get our hands on. And so, those are just like such a pride and joy. Austin, my ACD, and he co designed some of the episodes, was like, Working on Station Eleven is like being in a high school art class. And every day you get to do something creative and think about art and just kind of play. And, you know, now that it's over, reflecting back, it's like joy. It's like pure joy.
1: Mm -hmm. God, that sounds beautiful. Hearing you guys just talk about the making of this show, it actually brought to mind a quote from Bell Hooks, an amazing feminist scholar who is the reason why I write in many ways and who recently passed, where she said, love isn't a feeling, but a practice. You know, I'm paraphrasing there, but that is an act. It's something you do and put into motion. It isn't just a feeling. It's something you have to show and put into the world. And I think you guys have done that with this show on multiple levels. And so I just want to say thank you, Helen, for coming on and talking so beautifully about collaboration and what it takes to bring
3: something as beautiful as this show to life. Thank you so much. I love this interview. Thank you so much, Angela. Thank you. I love all your questions. They were so good. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Helen one day talked about the suit in terms of an imaginary friend for Miranda. And that day was the day that I think a big idea was born. I love Helen. I love how much she gave to the show. And I think anyone who just listened could tell that she's a fascinating individual who contributed a lot to the way that we thought about making Station Eleven.
1: Oh, definitely. I had such an amazing time talking with her. I... I hope it comes across to the listeners. I was giddy. Like when you're in the room with another artist who's just really puts their soul into their work and really cares and is curious and excited and joyful and has such a sense of play both in speaking with her. But also what she's doing on the show has a playfulness that I find really jolting in an exciting way.
2: I could feel you getting a little giddy. I feel like I know you well enough now. I know when you're giddy, but what what part did you love?
1: Well, a big part of this conversation that really struck me was just how you guys talk about collaboration and sort of the intimacy shared between artists who respect each other, as well as everything with dressing the undersea and, and really thinking through the eyes of the characters and how they would put things together in a way that speaks to the constraints and the dynamics of the world building on the page as well. Like, just, there's so much about the conversation that was just a lot of fun. It was just really cool. I feel like I learned a lot, and it made me both excited to bring a new perspective to my own writing when I think about costuming.
2: Hmm. Well, that's why I love this podcast, actually. And I'm so glad we're doing it, because people can watch the show and they won't quite know how impossible it would have been without so many people. There's too much difficult men, showrunner, golden <laughs> golden age of television narrative, and not enough truth, honestly. It's the we. It's not me. It's the we. None of this show could exist without about 50 geniuses giving mm. everything they had. And so the podcast feels really true to me. I'm glad you're here to help tease it out.
1: On that beautiful compliment, I gotta say, you know, thank you again to Helen Wang. And that's all for this episode. Thanks, as always, to everyone who's listening. Don't forget to tune in next week when we chat with our young Kirsten Matilda Lawler and our director Lucy Cherniak about episode seven, Goodbye, My Damaged Home.
2: Station Eleven, the podcast, is a production of HBO Max and iHeartRadio and hosted by me, Patrick Somerville, and Angelica Jade Bastian. Our executive producer is Molly Sosha, with special thanks to Ethan Fixel. Our engineer extraordinaire is James Foster. This episode was written and researched by Kate Voss.
1: If you liked what you heard, don't forget to rate and review Station Eleven, the podcast, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen.
2: And don't forget to subscribe or follow the podcast for free so you don't miss an episode. And be sure to watch new episodes of Station Eleven on HBO Max.